Well, hey, I want to welcome uh, those of you watching online right now. Some of you may know we've been live streaming our Sunday morning services this fall, and uh, we've been uh, really pleased. We've had dozens of people all over the world watching on Sunday morning. So to those of you who are watching online right now, we thank you for uh, participating with us, and we hope that you're blessed as well as you uh, join us today. Well, this morning, we're picking up our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, The Journey to Joy. And uh, this morning's message is titled, The Vanity of Time. Some of you know that we are three weeks into the National Football League season now. And uh, one of the big stories of the season so far came out of week one. And one of the best wide receivers in football, Odell Beckham Jr., he plays for the Cleveland Browns. And uh, the big story from week one wasn't so much his play on the field as it was what he was wearing while he played. Odell Beckham Jr. in the first game of the season wore a wristwatch during the game. It wasn't just any kind of watch, however. It was a Richard Mill designer luxury watch worth $350,000. $350,000. Friends, that's worth more than my house and my cars and pretty much everything I own combined. I mean, can you imagine that? wearing a $350,000 in a football game, for Pete's sake. And this was the talk of the sports world coming out of week one. You know, as I thought about this story and uh, Odell Beckham Jr., you know, and his pride in, you know, seeking, uh, seeking attention, wearing this uh, exclusive watch, uh, what really came to my mind this week was the reality of how we are a culture today that is obsessed with time. Now, now, for most of us, we can't afford $350,000 watches, but, but we're just as obsessed with time as Odell Beckham Jr. is. In fact, we have our iPhones, we have our Apple watches, our day planners, our calendars. Uh, we, we seem to not be able to escape time. In fact, I would venture to guess that even in the last minute, a whole bunch of you here this morning looked at your watches and thought to yourself, how long is this guy going to blab on today, Right? I mean, because, again, the clock is ticking, and we're always watching the time. I, I don't know about you, but even when I go on vacation, I can't escape the pressure of time. I mean, here's what I do. I go on vacation, and I know I've got, like, say, like, it's going to be a five-day vacation. Well, I start looking at the clock, worrying about the days whittling away, thinking, oh, no, I only got four more days of vacation. I only got three more days of vacation. I can't even enjoy my vacation because I'm so obsessed with time. Time is an obsession in our culture today. We, we seek to control time. How, how many of you have ever thought, you know, I just got to manage my time better? Or I, I got to make the most of my time. Many of us have turned time into a commodity. We say things like, time is money. Or how many of you ever thought, you know, time is my most valuable asset? We turn it into a commodity. We stress out over the lack of time. We, we say things like, time is short, and the clock is ticking. And of course, we hope for better times, thinking, when will my time come? Or, it's only a matter of time. Things have got to change. And then we lament the passing of time. We think, where'd the time go? There's never enough time. Neil Postman, in his profound book titled Amusing Ourselves to Death, observes that with the invention of the clock in the 14th century, humans were made into timekeepers and then time savers and now time servers. 
We are a people obsessed with time. But of course, the tyranny of the ticking clock is not unique to us moderns. In fact, long before Palm Pilots and Apple Watches were invented, the Roman playwright Plautus cried out, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him who cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into small pieces. Confound him who in this place set up a sundial. Friends, our slavery to time has long burdened the human race. We run the rat race by day, we battle rush hour by night, and we set our alarm clocks by our bedside so we can wake up and do it all over again the next day. As Hootie and the Blowfish sang in their hit song, Time, Time, why you punish me? You ever feel like that? Time, why you punish me? You know, when we think about our obsession with time, we have to ask, where does this obsession come from? Well, according to King Solomon, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, in Solomon's wisdom, our obsession with time ultimately stems from our misguided attempts to find joy in the things of this world. If you've been with us the past two weeks as we've studied the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen Solomon's personal journey in pursuit of joy. We, we saw the, the testimony of Solomon who was given wisdom unlike any other in the history of the world by God. And yet, instead of using this grand wisdom he was blessed with to honor God and to pursue God, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, turned his back on God and decided to pursue joy in the things of this world rather than walking in the footsteps of his creator. And in the last two weeks, we've seen Solomon's personal journey, pursuing joy and, and pleasure and in profit and, and in all the stuff that this world promises leads to joy. But as we've seen, as I talked about last week, the, the promises of this world, friends, the idols of this world that, that promise us joy are really like a Russian doll. Some of you have seen these Russian dolls. I actually bought this one for my wife in St. Petersburg, Russia a few years ago. But you see, the, the stuff of this world and the, the promises it makes, the, the world tells us that, that it's in pursuing pleasure and profit and money and stuff and success and fame. All of these things will lead to joy, but at the end of the day, they're just empty idols. You open it up and you realize it's hollow inside, and so you need something more, and so you get another idol. But that one, too, is empty and hollow inside. And so you, you keep searching and you keep opening up these idols, looking for joy, looking for meaning. And one after another, they leave you empty, longing for more. That's what Solomon discovered as he pursued joy in the stuff of this world. And last week, we saw that Solomon's message shifts in the book of Ecclesiastes from, from his pursuit of joy in the things of this world to an, an acknowledgement that true joy can only be found in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Solomon discovered that as we pursue joy in the stuff of this world, what happens is, is we ultimately become obsessed with time. See, here, here's how it works, friends. We recognize that our time under the sun is limited. We, we recognize that we have only so much time in this world. We have a, an appointment with the grave that none of us can escape. And so somehow, somewhere, we've got to find real joy in this life before we ultimately reach the destination that's coming for all of us. 
And so time becomes our God. But it's a cruel God. It burdens us with anxiety as it's constantly slipping away from us. We need more time. We search for joy in this world, but we just can't find it. And we think, maybe if I just had more time. And so we race through life in pursuit of joy, enslaved by time, restless in the knowledge that the clock is ticking. And Solomon says, it's all vanity. A breath, a mist, a vapor. It's meaningless. You'll never find joy in the stuff of this world. And if that's your source of hope, friends, you will always be enslaved and obsessed with the ticking of time. See, friends, this is the message of our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. The vanity of time as we pursue joy in the stuff of this world. Now, today's passage is likely one that many of you will instantly recognize. In fact, it's probably one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. In fact, I would argue even many non-Christians would immediately recognize this passage of Scripture. And the reason for that is, is because it was the inspiration behind one of the greatest hit songs in American history. In fact, the number one hit song of 1965, written by Bob Seger and recorded by the birds, is directly attributable to our passage this morning. Why don't you take a listen? How many of you remember that song by the birds? Pretty great song. 
But of course, if I was ripping off divinely inspired lyrics, I could write a number one hit song myself, you know what I'm saying? It's actually an interesting story. Bob Seger, who wrote the song, he recognized that he really couldn't take a whole lot of credit for it because he literally lifted the lines of that song word for word from Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes 3. And so Bob Seger, to this day, tithes part of his royalties for that song to the nation of Israel. He can't give them to Solomon, so he gives them to the nation of Israel as the next best option. Isn't that interesting? But this song was inspired by our passage. Now, while the birds turned this song into a popular anti-war anthem in the late 60s, as I mentioned earlier, Solomon's true purpose for writing this powerful piece of poetry was to reveal to us the vanity of time as we pursue joy in the things of this world. But even more than that, Solomon's hope is that as we realize the fleeting nature of life in this world that we might ultimately look beyond this world to the God who created this world to discover true and lasting joy. So this morning I want to read our passage, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, and then I want to come back and I want to highlight three truths that Solomon shares with us here about the vanity of time. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. Solomon says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now, this is a powerful passage, but it's a passage that, that doesn't lend itself very well to an obvious interpretation. And, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to help us to, to understand what exactly Solomon is conveying here as it relates to time. Solomon's going to highlight here three pieces of wisdom, and, and as we're going to see, it's all about time. Number one, Solomon tells us that God is sovereign over all of our time. He starts out with this poem in the first half of our passage. And the key to understanding our entire passage this morning is found in the very first line in chapter 1. 
or in verse 1, I'm sorry. Solomon says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Under heaven. Now this is interesting. Because up to this point in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has referred to our human lives and our human experiences with the term under the sun. He's referred to our lives under the sun. But here, Solomon shifts to describe life in this world as being under heaven. In other words, everything that takes place in this life happens under the providential, sovereign oversight of our great and faithful creator, God. There's nothing that takes place in this world under heaven that's outside of God's sovereign wisdom and control. God is over all of it. And to prove this point, Solomon goes on to convey this poem to us. And in this poem, Solomon uses 14 pairs. And he uses a poetic device called a merismus. And a merismus is simply when you take a pair of opposites and you use that pair to convey everything in between that pair. In other words, the pair indicates completeness. And so Solomon speaks of life and death. He's not simply talking about those two events. He's talking about everything that transpires in the life of men and women. It's a completeness. Our lives, our deaths, and everything in between. And he goes through this list of human experiences and human emotions and events and and tasks that we go through in this world. And what his point is, is that all of these things fall under God's sovereign providential oversight. Solomon's point here is not to convey some type of proverbial wisdom to us about love and hate and war and peace and weeping and mourning and laughing and joy. That's not his point. He's simply saying, look at these are all realities of what it is to be human under heaven. We experience all of these things, time and seasons and events and emotions. And know what? God is sovereign over all of them. They all transpire under heaven. And God's providential oversight. And friends, God's sovereignty over time is one of the most consistent messages that you'll find throughout the Bible. From beginning to end, over and over again, we are told that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is all-powerful. Nothing happens under the sun apart from his providential oversight. His providential plan. Take passages like Job 42, verse 2, for example. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Acts 17, 26, the Apostle Paul says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. In other words, the exact time periods in which we would live. Not only that, but the boundaries of their dwelling place. The exact places in which we live. It's not an accident. God determined those things. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. What's it say? Some things. All things, who works all things 
according to the counsel of his will. Friends, God has a plan and a purpose behind everything that happens in our lives under the sun. He is sovereign. And understand this, friends, if God is sovereign over time, you better believe he is also sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over the events of your life. Look at Job 14, verse 5. Since his man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. In other words, friends, God has defined the days of your life. God knows. He knows the day you're born and he knows the day that you're going to leave this world. God has ordained those things. Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David is saying, look at even before I was born, you saw me, and you had my days written in your books before any one of them came to be. Friends, there's nothing that happens in our lives That's a surprise to God that catches him off guard. All of our days are recorded in his books before even one of them comes to be. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 20.24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. All the stories of the great kings in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, the enemies of Israel, God says, look at their lives are like streams in my hands. I turn them anywhere I want to go. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says to the nation of Israel, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God says, I know the plans. Not I hope or I wish or or I think or maybe. No, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God is sovereign, friends. There was a time in my life when I would have defined God's sovereignty very differently. When I was in college, I became enamored with a theological viewpoint known as open theism. Open theism teaches that God does not know the future, that the future is open to God. And God is sovereign in that he is all-powerful and he's in control, but he's not sovereign in the sense that he knows the future because the future is not there even for God to know. And I bought into this idea for quite some time, friends. But as I studied scripture... Over the course of years, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout God's word, repeated claims that God knows all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that nothing happens outside of his providential oversight, that he is in control. He knows our days. They're all numbered in his book. Friends, as I read these, faith, these passages of God's foreknowledge and his faithfulness and the prophecies of Scripture, it was like a cascade, a flood that overwhelmed me. And friends, I eventually had to put that open theistic view where it belongs on the trash bin of all the theological heresies throughout the ages. See, God is sovereign over all our days. He's sovereign over time. He is 
in control. This is the consistent message throughout the Bible. But the question now becomes, how will we respond to this reality? What will we do with this truth that God is sovereign? This leads me to the second point Solomon makes in our passage this morning. Solomon tells us that without God, time is ultimately meaningless. Without God, time is ultimately meaningless. After declaring to us the absolute sovereignty of God over time, over the seasons of life and nature and all of our days, Solomon now points to the reality that there are only two possible responses to God's sovereignty. Number one, we can either reject God and his sovereignty over our lives, which Solomon says ends in despair, or we can place our hope in God's sovereignty and find true joy in a relationship with him. And in verses 9 through 11, Solomon begins by assessing the individual who chooses to reject God. And what he reveals here is that there's an inevitable and an incurable frustration in life for the person who fails to put their hope in God. Let's read verses 9 through 11 again. Solomon says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The first thing Solomon reminds us of here is the vanity of life apart from God. Life in a fallen world, a Genesis 3 kind of world. Genesis 3 tells us that because of the sin and rebellion of the original man and woman, God has subjected this world to futility. This world is under a curse. As Christians, we use the term the fall. It has fallen from its perfect original state to the situation we find ourselves in today where life now is burdensome and it's a toil and we strive and we struggle and we wrestle with things like sickness and disease and death. And all of this is part of this fallen reality that we live in today which wasn't part of God's original creation. And Solomon begins here in verse 9 by asking a question he's asked repeatedly in our study. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business, or the Hebrew can be translated the burden. I have seen the burden that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon says, life in this world under the sun, under heaven, apart from God is burdensome. We toil and we look for profit and we look for meaning and purpose and joy and in all of the things the world offers, pleasure and rewards and stuff and possessions and fame and Solomon says, mm, it's all meaningless. We're not going to find it there. And so Solomon goes on and he speaks of the God-ordained frustration we experience in this world. He goes on in verse 11, he says that God made everything beautiful in its time. And what he means by that, he's not speaking of the aesthetic beauty of creation. What he's speaking of there is a fixed plan and purpose, a design for everything that God has made and created. 
Nothing has happened by chance. God has sovereignly ordered and ordained everything that we see. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. What that means, friends, is that God has instilled in every one of us a longing for something more than what this world can offer. God has put within us a desire to know him. And that longing can only be satisfied when we trust him by faith and enter into a relationship with him. It's very interesting, friends. If you study history or anthropology or sociology, what you will quickly discover is that there has never been a purely atheistic society anywhere in the history of the world. Men and women, it appears, have been hardwired to worship. Why do we see people worshiping all over the world? They worship, friends, because God implanted that desire in their hearts. He put eternity into our hearts so that we would pursue him. And if we're not pursuing the true God, we're going to look for other gods to satisfy that longing. But we're going to quickly discover that they can't satisfy because they're hollow and empty. And that's one of the reasons why this pursuit of joy in this world leads to frustration. Solomon goes on in verse 12, or in verse 11, he says, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. He's put eternity into our hearts, but he's kept his plans and purposes hidden from us. We, we want to know, God, what are you doing in my life? Well, what's the meaning behind all of this? And yet God has hidden these things from us. Why? Because he is God and we are not. Because he is the sovereign creator and we are the finite creation. And so God instilled this frustration in us for a reason. And what's the reason? He gives us this frustration in this world, life under heaven, for simply one purpose. To force us to ask the question, am I going to turn to God in faith and trust him with my days under the sun? Or am I going to resent him because I want to be in control of my own life? And so I'm going to resist him and rebel against him and push him away. I'm going to do what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1. I'm going to exchange the truth of God for a lie. I'm going to suppress the truth of God because I want to be the boss of my life. I don't want anyone being authority over me. I want to be the authority. And people do this all the time. They resist God. They're born with this internal frustration, this longing for truth, this longing to know God, and, and, and this frustration can only be satisfied with God. But when we fail to submit to God, we're stuck. We're left with this incurable frustration. And last week, Solomon says it leads to vexation because all of this stuff in this world is just a chasing after the wind. It's like the famous French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once said, that God does not exist, I cannot deny that my whole being cries out for God. I cannot forget. He had so suppressed the truth that he was convinced that there was no God. And yet, when he was honest, he had to acknowledge that his whole being cried out for God. Because God had put eternity in his heart. And friends, you will go through life with this inevitable, incurable frustration if you don't find your true joy in God. 
See, the good news today is that there is another option to the frustration that we experience in this world. The frustration of this world doesn't have to lead to despair. See, other people experience this frustration, but instead of resenting God and turning from God and pushing God away, they do what God hopes we would do, and they turn to him. C.S. Lewis, for example, the famous scholar, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, God has given us all this frustration, this longing for joy, this longing for purpose, this longing for meaning. But you see, the only way to satisfy this frustration is to humble ourselves and turn to him. And until you're willing to bend your knee before the Lord, you will never know the source of true joy in this world. This leads me to point number three this morning. Solomon tells us that with God, our time has ultimate meaning. Without God, our time is meaningless. But with God, our time has ultimate meaning. Verses 12 through 15, let me read what Solomon says once again. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Here in this passage, God tells, Solomon tells us that God brings ultimate meaning to our time. Number one, to our time in this world. In verses 12 through 14, God brings meaning to our time in this world. Here Solomon gives us two admonitions. He says, number one, live life to the full. And number two, trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's providential oversight and control. He, he begins here in verse 12 saying, saying, live life to the full. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Friends, this is one of many passages in the book of Ecclesiastes that scholars call the carpe diem passages. Carpe diem is a Latin term that means seize the day. And Solomon says to those who pursue God, seize the day. Enjoy this world. Enjoy the stuff of this world. Enjoy life in this world. But as we saw last week, there's an appropriate way to do that. You do that by putting Christ at the center of your life. By doing the things in this world the way God defined and ordained them for them to be done. So, so as we talked about last week, the stuff of this world and the pleasures and joys of this world, they're not bad in and of themselves. But when we look to them as gods and we set them up as idols and we pursue them thinking they're going to lead us to true joy and we exercise them apart from God's ordained ways of doing things, right? Whether we're talking about work and profit or buildings or pleasures or sex or relationships, whatever it may be, all of these things, friends, God made these things. He's the creator, but you'll only experience true joy in these things if you do them the way God designed for them to be and you keep him at the center. If you're doing that, by all means, carpe diem, seize the day. 
Because this is God's gift to man, Solomon says. Enjoy it. But then he goes on and he says, secondly, that we are to trust in God's sovereignty. He says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Here, Solomon's point is basically this. Look at When you understand that God is sovereign and in control, the point of that knowledge is to drive you to God and lead you to trust in God, lead you to fear God. Don't turn from him in rebellion and resentment because you're not in control. That's not going to do you any good. You're not in control. I don't care if you don't like that fact. It's the fact of the world. You live under heaven. There is a God who made you. You might want to be the boss too bad. I'm sorry, it's not going to work out. But when you accept that reality and you turn to God and you fear God, that is when you will discover true joy in this life. Fearing God, friends, is not a negative concept in the Bible. It doesn't mean like getting in the corner and trembling. That's not what fearing the Lord is. Fearing God is about reverence and trust. To fear God in the context of our passage this morning is to trust in his sovereign plans for our lives. It's to believe in his goodness and love for us even when we cannot understand his plans and purposes. To fear God is to hold on to a confident assurance that nothing, nothing enters into our lives that isn't first father-filtered. And to fear God is to believe the promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, when you understand God's sovereignty and you trust him, and you turn to him, and you fear him, suddenly time doesn't become an obsession anymore. Suddenly the ticking clock becomes less worrisome. Suddenly that appointment with the grave that awaits all of us doesn't become a source of fear. It becomes a source of hope and joy. See, when you fear God, everything changes. We don't always understand God's plans and purposes in our lives. In this world, one of the things my, my wife and I have enjoyed over the years is collecting pottery. I've got a few samples here, and when we go on vacation, we like to you know stop in specialty stores that you know watch the potters work and see what they're making. And so we've picked up some pieces over the years, and it's very interesting if you've ever seen a potter at work. Potter starts with a with an ugly lump of clay, and he takes that lump of clay and he slams it down on his potter's table on the potter's wheel, and and he begins to mold it and knead it, and with his powerful hands he begins to work it and 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 make it pliable. And I can only imagine that that piece of clay, as it sits there on the table in the potter's hands, and the potter is working it and kneading it and molding it, I can imagine that piece of clay is saying, "Potter, ah, oh, what are you doing to me? This hurts, Potter, stop." And the potter takes this piece of clay and he begins to spin his wheel and he begins to mold and shape it and, 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 the, and the clay as it's being stretched and worked, the clay says, potter, oh, this is, this is painful. What are you doing to me? And suddenly the potter makes a, a sharp turn and curves the edge and the clay cries out, potter, oh. 
you're killing me, you're breaking my heart. And when the potter's finished, he pulls up a beautiful piece of work. But then the potter takes this beautiful piece of work and he sticks it in the fire, in the kiln. And the clay says, potter, this burns, it hurts, stop. But when the potter pulls it out of the fire, he has a beautiful piece of art. See, it's very interesting, friends. The Bible tells us that our sovereign God is the potter and we are the clay. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Friends, when you understand that reality, it will change your entire perspective on life. It will change your understanding of the circumstances in your life that are seemingly out of your control, that you don't understand, that you don't even like. The heartaches, the pains, the disappointments. We can trust that God has a sovereign plan and purpose for them all. I love this quote by Max Lucado. He says, God is God. He knows what he is doing. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Not only does God give ultimate meaning to our time in this life, but Solomon concludes our passage by telling us that God gives ultimate meaning to our time in eternity. Verse 15, my goodness. I'm telling you one of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. It's a verse that isn't easy to understand at first, but when I tell you what this means, it's going to blow you away, friends. Solomon ends our passage, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Solomon says, look, it, there's nothing that hasn't happened that hasn't already happened, and there's nothing that will happen that hasn't already happened. Why? Because God sees all of time in one sovereign view. There's nothing new under the sun in God's providential oversight. He sees all of human history. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God knows about it all. You're never going to surprise him. You're never, never going to catch him off guard. But here's where this passage gets really awesome. Solomon says, and God seeks what has been driven away. What on earth does that mean? What's Solomon talking about? Friends, Solomon is talking about the lost moments of time. He's talking about the past in our lives. The things that we didn't understand in terms of God's plans and purposes. He's talking about the heartaches and the pains and the losses that left us mourning and grieving and questioning. And Solomon says, God seeks what has been driven away. God restores and redeems these lost moments of time. The child who left this world far too soon. The marriage that never fully lived up to your expectations. The spouse who died far too early. Solomon says God seeks what has been driven away. He pursues those lost moments of time. And one of the greatest promises in the Bible is one day God is going to make all things new. Revelations 21, 1 through 5 says that when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, 
John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, do you have this hope today? The hope in the God who seeks what has been driven away? One day all things are going to be made new. And God's plans will be made clear. And the lost time in this world, all of our hurts, all of our pains, all of our disappointments, all of them, will be redeemed by our faithful and loving Heavenly Father who works all things together for the good of his children. Friends, that's our hope as Christians. What a great hope it is. You know, we can't escape the reality of time in this world, but we can escape our enslavement to it. And we can break free of the futility of striving to discover hope in the empty promises of a broken world while burdened by the knowledge that our time is coming and the clock is ticking and death is looming. You see, without God, friends, time is the enemy. But with God, time is infused with meaning and purpose and joy both now and for all eternity. And my friends, my prayer for you today is that you would put your hope in the one who is sovereign over time. And that in doing so, you too would discover the secret of real life, real joy, which is only found in a relationship with him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. And we thank you for the message that he shared with us here today, that we no longer have to be enslaved by time and the reality of our impending deaths and the ticking clock and the race for joy in this world but that we can rest in the sovereign plans and purposes of our creator. That we can trust that you are good and you have ordained every time, every season, every matter under heaven. That nothing happens outside of your providential oversight and you are a faithful God. Lord, may we not rebel and resent you for that sovereignty over our lives, but may we turn to you, fearing you, trusting you, hoping in you. And in doing so, Lord, may we know true joy, the true joy that's found only in walking with you, our creator. Lord, we thank you for that great promise that one day you will make all things new. And you seek what has been driven away, those lost moments of time that we didn't understand in this life, the hurts, the pains, the loved ones that we've lost, God, you will restore and redeem all these things in your eternal plans and purposes. One day you will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will see and understand the beautiful design that you had for each of our lives. Help us to trust you in faith, God, in the meantime, because it's not always easy. But we look to you, our faithful God, as our source of hope. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. I'm going to leave you with the opening line of our passage today. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. 
For there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And because of this, Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, in everything you do, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. May God bless you, friends. Amen.